How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. That's Psalm 13, which along with Psalms 12 and 14 are the Psalms appointed for today, Wednesday, October the 12th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're in the book of Jonah still, chapter 1, verse 17, through chapter 2, verse 10, in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 9, the first 17 verses, and then in Acts 27, verse 9, through verse 26 of that same chapter. So if you remember yesterday, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So he, he's realizing at this point, I'm actually not going to die. <laughs> there, there, there must be some plan and purpose for me to be in this fish. So he prayed, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now Sheol is the place of the dead. And so as Jonah has gone down to the bottom of the sea, in his mind, that those two things are similar ideas. And so he is in the belly of Sheol. He's in the belly of the fish, but he's in the belly of the, in the, in the, belly of the place where death would be. And so he sees these things as the same, that, that, that he is essentially not among the living. So he is among the dead. And you heard my voice. So he's already proclaiming that God hears him. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. He said, I continued to believe. I continued to believe that I would one day still, even though it looked hopeless, it looked like there was no possibility that I would live, I said, I will see your holy temple which is very similar to Job's declaration that I've mentioned a couple of times recently, which was that, that I know that my Redeemer lives, and, and in the end, I will stand upon the earth, and in my eyes, I will see God. And that's the same declaration that Jonah's making here. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. I mean, he's declaring this to have been done. And he's declaring it largely because, well, what else is he going to do? He hasn't died, and he's in this odd predicament. So he believes, however, then, oh, that's not going to end this way. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came up to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. I'm going to live, and I'm going to go to the temple, and I'm going to make sacrifice for the sin that I have uh, made, possibly, maybe. But, but really, to celebrate you, <laughs> what I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. In other words, the only one who can rescue me here is you. It's the, it's the same idea that we saw in Micah on Monday. 
that, nope, I'm not looking to, that God's the one responsible for all of this. And if he's responsible for it, he can get me out of it. And as soon as he speaks the word, salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So Jonah is delivered. And that begs the question, what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? Are you, are you going to do what I ask you to do? Or are you going to run in the other direction again? Didn't work the last time. But it's up to you. <clears throat> in the in the gospel, Jesus calls the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Now, I've talked a lot about authority over the last little bit. So here, Jesus is delegating authority, which means that he has the authority. He's already proven that he has the power and the authority over demons and to cure diseases. But, but now he looks at the 12, and, and he delegates, gives them power and authority to do the same thing. Now, it takes faith to receive that. We've seen Jesus do it, but why should I think that I can do that? Does this power completely reside in him, or does he, or does he have the power and the ability to delegate it and give it away? Well, you, likewise, have been given power and authority. Do you walk in that power and authority? Do you even think about that? Do you even think about the reality that through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you have power and authority? Doesn't mean you have it in every situation. Doesn't mean that everything that, that you get involved in and pray with is going to come out the way you want it to. But here, Jesus gave them power and authority over these things. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So there's two different things going on. But one is a witness to the other. Again and again and again, Jesus says, believe the words or at least believe the signs. And so he sends these guys out to proclaim, which is to speak words concerning the coming of the kingdom, and heal, which shows that the kingdom of God is here now. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and don't have two tunics. Don't, you know, don't worry about all that stuff. This is similar to when he tells them, You're going to be dragged before councils and all this kind of stuff, but don't prepare your testimony in advance. When you get there, the Spirit will speak through you. So you don't have to worry about that testimony. It's going to be okay. The Spirit will be with you in these instances, and that's exactly what he says here. Just just travel light. Go and do those things. You don't need all that stuff to go do this. Just go do the work that I've given you to do. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. Don't go bouncing around. This is not a social thing that I've sent you out to do. It's a specific mission, and you need to act like people who are on a mission. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them, which is what a good Jew did when he passed through a Gentile territory or through Samaria. Because what he said was is that, 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 that even the dust of your town is unholy. It's sort of like thinking about the leaven of Egypt, that they've got to get rid of their leaven every year to get rid of the old leaven to make room for the new leaven. So here what he tells them is, is if they don't receive you in a place, don't do anything other than shake off the dust. In other words, what you're saying, you're witnessing to them that you're like a Gentile or a pagan town as far as we're concerned. Treat them like that. If they reject you, then, then let them know that, that you're, you're a witness against them by shaking the dust off your feet. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So they did exactly what they were told to do. And they obviously had the power to do that which they were told to do. But it begs the question, they preached the gospel. 
gospel. What is that gospel? At this point in time, what, what is the gospel? The gospel would have to be that uh, the stories that they could tell you about Jesus and that he was coming, that he was coming this way because he sends them together ahead of him where he's going to be. And so they're, they're heralds of the king, the king who is here now. And so they're telling the gospel, the good news is what that means, it, the, the Evangelion, they're, they're, they're telling what they know. They would have told probably the stories of Jesus' baptism. We, we assume that they would have known the stories of his birth, and they would have told those stories. They would have told about all they had seen and all they had heard. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. That means he's over four different cities heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. There's this odd belief that persists through this day in Judaism about a certain kind of reincarnation. It's it's the spirit of someone that's in them, and so I don't know why they believe it, but that's exactly what this is talking about that there was a belief that this person had been raised back to life. He raised from the dead, which is not the same as resurrection, because he has a new body. Nobody, nobody thought that. They just thought it's the spirit of John. Now, what that means, like I said, I just don't understand it. Because is it more than a body? I mean, that body was, was there before John was put to death. And so what are they saying? I'm just, I'll have to do more work on Jewish belief regarding reincarnation, and I'll do a special little thing about that soon. <clears throat> so Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? So he says, I know I killed him. So who is this guy? He at least had the wisdom to understand that, and he sought to see him. On their return, the disciples, the apostles, because they were sent at this point, they're, they're not learning they were sent with a message, and that's what an apostle is, is someone who is sent with a message. So, so he, he called the 12 disciples together, gave them the authority, and sent them out. And now, because they've been sent, they're apostles. So they told him all they'd done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida, which is up in the Galilee region. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So he's, he's doing the same thing that they had done. He's speaking, and he's proclaiming through action, through healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we're here in a desolate place. We're out in the middle of nowhere. And, and there's no place for us to get food for these people. They, they, need, they need to take provision for the night. Now, Jesus had already told them, remember, when he sent them out, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and don't have two tunics. Here, they're saying we got to send these people away because they, they don't have provisions <clears throat> in the same way that we didn't have provisions, but you sent us into cities where we could get these things. So <clears throat> Jesus said, you give them something to eat. Well, you told us to travel. <laughs> so they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. There were about 5,000 men. I mean, I don't know where they would have gotten the money to feed that many people. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves 
and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. So Jesus is showing us that God will always provide. Even when it looks like there's no possibility that he could provide, God will provide. And so he, he's telling us to travel light. It's always the, the message of God is to travel light. And the problem becomes that we allow everything to be, we, we allow ourselves to be encumbered by all those things. It's, it's Paul says, throw off everything that hinders you from running the race. Well, you know what hinders us largely from running the race and being able to, to, to move on a dime? It's the stuff that we own. We, we put our trust in that stuff. It's important to us. And so, you know, when Jesus is, is going to Jerusalem and, and then these guys keep coming up to him and say, hey, let me do this, but first, I, I'll come follow you, but first let me do this. Let me do this. Let me do this. And, and Jesus will have none of that. No, you need to be prepared to come and follow me in a moment's notice. But, but our problem is, is that we allow all that other stuff to weigh us down. And I say that as somebody with experience of doing that very thing. Because when I, well, when I was first called, I was in college. But then the second time God's call came to me, I couldn't do it because, well, I was making too much money. And if I just made some more money, then I would have enough money where I didn't have to worry about it. And I could go to seminary and we could still have a blast and maintain our standard of living. God says, no, that ain't going to happen, John. That's not going to happen. And so he prepared us. He prepared us to, to be able to live light and to follow him wherever he goes. If you saw you know, where I live now, you know, a big house and lots of stuff, you'd say, well, you're not traveling all that light, John. But there, there's a need for us to be able to move at a moment's notice. And when I say move, I don't mean, you know, like relocate necessarily, but that could certainly be part of the package. No, I mean to, to be able to reorient our lives on a moment's notice. We, we need to be prepared for God to reorient our lives at any given time and, and not allow that to ruin our lives, to, to put us into a place of despair, put us into a place where we're arguing with God over these things. No, we need to be able and willing to move as he says move. In the Acts lesson today, um, Paul, remember they've been traveling, and so Luke's telling this as a firsthand account of their travels. They're having difficulty. They're moving slowly because the wind is against them. He says, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous— because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So it's, it's coming on winter, and you don't travel and sail in that area in the winter. And so Paul says, look, I, I, I see what's going on here. I see what the situation is, and I see what's going to happen. This is, if we keep pursuing this, this uh, voyage, we're going to lose not only the ship, the cargo, but we're also going to lose lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Well, and that makes perfect sense, right? I mean, this guy is the expert. <laughs> he is the guy who's the pilot. He's the owner of the ship. I'm going to trust their opinions about whether we have safe travel or not. They've done this a lot more than you have. Rabbi, prisoner, whatever. You know, where's your expertise come from? And Paul says, I'm hearing from the Lord. But he, you're a prisoner, man. I, I, hearing from the Lord didn't, hadn't got you into a good place. So he pays more attention to the pilot and the ownership, as he should, and as 
99.99% of people would. And because the harbor wasn't suitable to spend the winter in, they're in Fairhaven, uh, the majority decided to put out from to sea from there. So there are places that are, that are safe harbors to overwinter. Just like today, I, I mean, when we lived in Pauly's Island, there were a lot of people who would take their boats down to certain places in the Bahamas during hurricane season, a place called Hurricane Hole, because they never hit there. And it was a safe place to keep your boat to make sure that it didn't get torn up if a hurricane hit. So they just, the majority, so now we're beyond the pilot and the, and the owner, it's the majority of people there decided to put out from sea on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So that they had a goal in mind, but, but they were hoping on the chance that somehow they could reach it. So there's a little bit of expertise in that idea, but there's a whole lot more guesswork involved. This is not a good place, so let's see if we can get there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. So it looked like when the wind began to blow from the south, it looked for all the world like, oh, it's going to be favorable. Let's go. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster. So it was blowing from the south and now it's coming from the northeast and it struck down from the land. So it's blowing to sea from the land. So they're going to have a hard time hugging the coast if it's blowing off the land. And when the ship was caught and couldn't face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. In other words, we, we kind of gave up fighting against it. And, and so we just started being driven along by the wind and the waves. So they took down the sails at that point, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. Now the lee, again, is a protected place where the wind is not so bad. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat, which would be the sort of, if you sent out a landing party, that's the ship's boat that they would use to go out in. And, and that's, that, that's a problem when it's just hanging loose. And after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. So they pulled everything up on board. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. The gear would be the sails and all that stuff. So now they're just moving by the power of the wind and the, uh, and the waves. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. So what did Paul said? You're, it's going to be, the voyage is going to be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So here, they're losing the cargo. They're throwing it out in order that they can make better time, and the cargo is not going to weigh them down. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. I mean, they're basically, they're giving up the ship here. They're throwing everything overboard. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, in other words, it was, it was, it was a storm went on for a long time, and we couldn't navigate because we couldn't navigate by the sun, we couldn't navigate by the moon, and we couldn't navigate by the stars, and no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. In other words, they should have listened to Paul, right? And so does Paul handle that with a plum? Yes and no. Since they had been without food for a long time, because of the, the necessity of taking care of the ship and, and making sure it was secure, and nobody had a moment's break in order to do that, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me 
and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Well, thanks. It's always helpful when somebody says, I told you so. You just made it all better, Paul, right? No. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there'll be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. So initially he had said you're going to lose the cargo, you're going to lose the ship, and you're going to lose lives. Now he's already they've already lost the cargo. He says, but, but the good news is we're not going to lose any lives. We are going to lose the ship, but we're not going to lose any lives. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted to me you to all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. We can't stay out here in the sea. In order for us to survive, we're going to have to run this thing aground. Now, Paul has, he, he, the, so why did he say, I told you so? To remind them, I had a word before we left, remember? So maybe now would be a good time to listen to me because I have more than that now. I, I just perceived it before, but now I'm telling you an angel of God appeared before me. Now, take heart. Nobody's going to die, but we are going to lose everything. We're going to lose everything else. And so now the question that, that hangs as we move on today is, is what happened? And we'll find out that tomorrow. But the reality is we see the same situation here, the same situation that we saw in the gospel. And that is they had to, they had to throw everything else off in order to run this race. In order to save their lives, they've got to get rid of everything else. And so it's important, again, for us to take stock and to figure out, if God called me to something today, would I be willing to answer, and then would I be able to answer that call to do whatever he called me to do?